0: Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. This podcast is a recording of a Hiraith live event held in conjunction with the Wales Trades Union Congress and featuring special guest Mick Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT Union, with Cyril Griffiths, Wales Editor of The Conversation UK, guest hosting from the chair. We talk about trade unions, public services and the relationship between Welsh and UK Labour. We hope you enjoy.
1: Thank you, uh, thank you, everybody. Um, welcome, Chrysop Mick. Thank um, you. We're really happy to have you here in Cardiff at the Little Man. Really big thanks to I've Podcasts and the Wales TUC for putting this event together. Um, you've just arrived from Aberdeen. I have. What kind of a welcome did you get?
0: Well, it was a welcome in the valleys, as I say. Uh, it was great. Uh, I don't know, three hundred people there. It was. Sold out, you didn't have to pay, but it was sold out anyway. And we had some good speakers, Beth Winter was there. Um, then we had some other speakers, questions from the floor. Democracy's back, I think, a bit Bit of intelligence. And then we finished off with a male voice choir. The national anthem, your one, not the other, not the other <laughs> horrible one. It's good. And a bit of, yeah, it was, good. It was great. It was a great meeting, It's great to see people out. And we're getting tons of that all over the country in all sorts of places.
1: And I hear a rumour that you call for a general strike. Am I right?
0: I do that every 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. I've got it on my phone. It's it been alert. No, but I mean, it's, we're not going to get a general strike, 1926, where the TUC says, TUC, let's have a general strike. You're, what we'll get is coordination and synchronisation of what is becoming a rolling bandwagon in, the, in a good sense of discontent and hopefully campaigns leading to industrial action. And what I think the job of the TUC and union leaders have got to do is synchronise that and maximise our leverage. We would be barking if we didn't say, we've got a head of steam, we need to you know, use that the leverage at the negotiating table, in the media, getting the public aware of what we, what we believe in. So that's what we're calling for. It's our union's policy to have a general strike. What it looks like and whether we achieve it is a matter of what the movement does and what all, all you lot do. Because you're all in unions, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good.
1: <laughs> um, given that you've been in the Cynon Valley today, cradle of radicalism in Wales, mm. you've previously cited James Connolly as one of your inspirations. Are yeah. there any figures from Welsh history who have been inspiration to you?
0: Well, we were up there today, uh, Keir Hardy was obviously the MP for, for that area. You can't have Keir oh. Hardy. you've got to,
1: pick, got to pick someone else.
0: OK, <laughs> not Keir Starmer. <laughs> we'll and, uh,
1: come to that later.
0: And of course, the, well, the, the vicar there was the first president of our predecessor union, the Associated Society of Railway Servants, and we've moved on a bit since we described, uh, described ourselves as servants. So today's inspiration is Canon Jenkins, And at the back of the uh, church, uh, behind the altar, is a a massive, fairly famous stained-glass window that was donated by my union to that church to to remember him as a founder. Now, I'm not saying that... I mean, obviously, some of you are are lefties and you don't want to hear about canons and vicars and all that. But the point about that is, we have got... As a working-class movement, we've got to go back to our communities where our people are. And churches have got to adapt to the fact that a lot, a lot but not everyone is a believer anymore. And if they want to connect with where working class people are and where the working class movement is, we've got to roll out our movement to them. And in that church, it was great. The, the vicar was there in the choir singing. He made a little speech at the beginning. And we've been doing that right across the country. So enough is enough that some of you have heard about and the People's Assembly Against uh, Austerity... I called that the People's Assembly Against Democracy one, which is the wrong word. The People's (laughs) Assembly Against Austerity have been doing this stuff and we've been getting meetings like that one today, 300 people, the entire, you know, all the active people in the town and others. But we've got to get into the churches, into the village halls, into the mosques, into the synagogues, good warriors, whatever. And I'm glad to say in London, where I've been doing plenty of meetings, that's exactly what's happening. And in Liverpool Cathedral a couple of months ago, We had every denomination there because all of these faith groups are realising that the communities they serve are in crisis. They have been forced to run food banks. Now, I'm sure you don't start off as an imam or a vicar to say, what I really want to do is make people sandwiches and give them tins of beans. You probably want to do something else. But that's what they're being forced to do. So we've got to open it up. So my inspiration at the minute is activists, people that want to make change in their community and on behalf of their community through actually doing stuff. And we've spent too long talking about doing stuff and how we might do stuff and creating the perfect organisation. But what Keir Hardy and all those congregational and Baptist ministers and all those people found out back in the 1870s is you've actually got the organisation. It's already there. We've built it. We've got our communities, we've got our unions, we've got... A, some political parties, and the rest of it, we need to reinvigorate all that and get it suiting our needs.
1: This coming May, it's going to be two years since you took up your current role. Mm. In that time, particularly in the last six or seven months or so, you've become a household figure. Mm. How have you dealt with that?
0: It's a bit weird, especially, uh, you know, looking at me. I'm not I'm not the Brad Pitt of the Labour movement, but <laughs> whatever it is. I don't know, you just keep getting on with it. I mean, my background is... Like a lot of people in our movement, uh, you know, Dave Ward looks, he's a bit bigger than me, he looks like me, talks like me, but he's got the same background. So I come from an Irish community in London that was very active. I come from a religious community, as it happens. I'm, you know, born and bred as a Catholic, but it was a very vigorous uh, community. You had to stand up and argue. I got trained in branch rooms, in pubs, in community halls arguing stuff out, and all through Thatcher, all through, well, I remember Wilson was the Prime Minister when I first remember anything uh, in the 60s. So you had to argue your case, and going on the telly and doing it doesn't seem to be any different than being in a room like this. Sometimes the room's got six people, sometimes it's got 600. You've still got to be able to articulate our movement's case and our members' needs, so I just carry on, but... How do I do it? I don't know. I haven't had any training. I'm completely feral. You,
1: you, you have been subject, though, to some pretty vicious attacks, especially from, yeah. like, the tabloids. How, yeah. you know.
0: Well, if you're not getting attacked by them, you're not doing the job properly, as far as I'm concerned. So, I mean, we've got anonymous trade unions in this country. One of the biggest... I'm not going to name them, but one of the biggest trade unions in this country isn't doing anything in this current campaign. has got a general secretary that nobody's heard of, mm. And he's very comfortable to take, they're very comfortable taking checks every month off Tesco and Sainsbury's for delivering very little. And they don't get attacked. So if you're Dave Ward, you'll get attacked. If you're me at the minute, you'll get attacked. Mick Whelan will get attacked. That's because we're trying to take our members, and I'm at the front of that, is trying to take the fight back to the rich in our society, to the oligarchs, to the press, the media. So if you're not annoying the right people you're not doing the job in my opinion.
1: It's gone beyond though just scrutinizing what you've been saying. A couple of weeks ago you said that um, some tab- tabloid journalists had been targeting the social media profiles mm. of your children even that's Yeah, they
0: do that. disturbing. Well, uh, yeah, my, I mean and my wife's cousins I was over with my wife's cousin here last night but she's got cousins in America that they've been following. They go on to my children's... Uh, I mean, my children are adults, but they still deserve their privacy. Uh, they go onto to their Facebook, they contact my sister. They, do, they knocked on my brother. My brother lost his wife last year, and they're knocking on his door saying, what do you think of this sort of thing and the other? And he's just sitting at home saying, well, why are you talking to me? That's his life. So they'll do anything to put you off your game, like in a sport, and they regard it as an achievement the Daily Mail, which is the worst, the Daily Bile, that they want to feed us a diet of what's going on with Harry and Meghan and all that baloney and stop reporting news. And they want to put, you know, the people that you elect, people like me, off our game so we get deflected, we get, you know, not focused on the needs of the day. And But you've just got to carry on. It is a burden, but you've just got to carry on. It's worth being a pop star, I believe. <laughs> I?
1: Is this part of some sort of, do you see it as You know, the the UK government have tried to paint you as some sort of bogeyman figure. Mm. Is is that a part of that?
0: Yeah, they'll say that anyone that can articulate an idea is some kind of radical and some kind of Marxist or whatever. Maybe I'm some kind of Marxist, but I'm not in any Marxist organisation. Um, So they're scared of us. They're scared of what we're doing at the minute. That's the, the key point. They're very happy to have trade unions that are passive. They don't keep bringing a succession of laws in when the trade unions are quiet, because the trade unions have woken up and started to flex industrial muscle, but also some intellectual muscle as well. Mm. People are talking about why this society exists, what purpose has it got? You know, and redistribution of wealth and fairness and equality and social justice. And it's working class people doing it. And they really dislike that when it's not across that dispatch box where that's all a game that they have, and they're all mates. And when you see them down there, I have to go down there and quite a lot. They're like, "How are you doing? How's it going?" They're not enemies. They're all running a con- what Malcolm X called a controlled show. That's what Parliament is all about. And when they see people, you know, articulating this case in another arena, that starts to make them worry a bit. So then they change the laws if we don't have them on. If we don't allow them to go on strike. There'll be no picket lines, they won't win their case, but there'll also be no coverage mm. and we'll end up anonymous and hidden and irrelevant as well.
1: But you've also accused the BBC of parroting the editorial lines on oh, The Mail and The Sun, for example. Yeah. Um, you've obviously grown up watching the BBC, as have most of us. Mm. How have you seen the public service broadcaster change during that time?
0: Well, I think they're under pressure right now. The, the, the Daily Mail and The Telegraph and The Express go on about the licence fee, they go on about what they imagine to be all these left-wing ideologues running the BBC. So if you run, if you put in a bit of drama that doesn't fit in with what they say, it's left-wing propaganda. If you report what the trade unions are doing, it's left-wing propaganda. I think they're under a lot of pressure. I also think some journalism is very lazy. So they'll just get a press release off Network Rail or off the government and they'll go, that's what I'll ask him. I'll ask him why your members are so greedy, why you're disrupting everybody's lives they never say how is it that your members are prepared to make such sacrifices where do they get the ability to be so brave in what might be a very hostile environment and why is it they feel the need to fight back again they never ask questions like that they're all loaded that our life somehow is about mucking up your lives that's what you know we sit around going how can we really annoy everyone today you know (laughs) what, what is it we'll do that you know as if all these nurses and paramedics and physiotherapists go i'd like to inflict a bit more pain on people today so i'm just going to go out and go on strike it's a nonsense isn't it i mean everyone gets that but we've got to work out a way uh, where we fight back and we were asked this up in aberdeer today and there is some signs of hope i mean these podcasts i'm doing a lot of politics joe and navarro media and people are trying to get all this st- stuff going and it may not get the audience right then on that minute, but people are listening to stuff in a different way and watching stuff. Like some of the stuff we've done on politics, Joe, has got two and a half, three million people. And they're people that... And it's not only good that you've got it, it's, some of it is longer form. Mm. You actually get to argue out a case... <coughs> Over an hour or more in some cases, and I think that's really good. And it's, we've got to get more of that going.
1: So, do you think that the BBC are pursuing some sort of editorial line from above, or is it more reflective of a media which isn't truly representative of the society in which we live?
0: Yeah, well, it's never been representative of society. I mean, media has always been owned by private interests and owned by the people that want to set the agenda. So, the ideas that they put forward, uh, you can sound like a conspiracy theorist, but you haven't got to be very bright to work out there's only Four or five people that own the media in this country, they enjoy calling me a baron when they are actually barons. <laughs> they're Viscounts <laughs> and Dukes and all sorts, you know, what I can't remember what they're all called now, but the mail and the express and these are all owned by aristocrats and industrialists and oligarchs. It's all right saying Russia's run by oligarchs. This country's being run by oligarchs. Most of the world is being run by oligarchs. So they set an agenda that's in their class interests. It's in their class interest to maximise profit and drive down wages. That's the, the period of this we're in, and they're really worried about people coming back. And all those papers have got their journalists on the run. To some extent, they've broken the NUJ, they've broken the print unions back in the day, and they want to make sure that none of that comes back. So, you know, that's what they're doing, exercising their class option, and we've got to make sure that we fight back about that.
1: But how do you do that given the situation? For example, I know it doesn't look like it, but I was at the hairdressers yesterday Mm. and I was listening to two people complain about the strikes. And essentially what they were saying was, um, you know, we don't think it's very fair. You don't see us going on strike. We we don't get paid very well. It's the same thing that you hear quite a lot at the moment. Mm. How do you reach those Mm. people?
0: Well, my hairdresser's had to pursue another interest. <laughs> <laughs> he's gone got into another field of work. He wasn't getting enough, uh, <laughs> enough commission. So, um, yeah, you hear this all the time, and the media put it. And they used to say, why should your members get a pay rise when the nurses don't? And this is the most common thing. I mean, my wife is a nurse and has been a nurse for 40 years. So she's interested in that as well. Why has she not had a pay rise for the last 12 years? And I suppose you... It's not that our members get paid too much, it's that you don't get paid enough. And the reason you don't get paid enough is because the unions have been diluted and dissipated over the last, well, it's nearly 40 years now. Well, it's 40 years since the Tebbit Law, wasn't it? 81, 81, 82? Is that 40 years? I think it is. That is the, we're feeling the long-term entrenched effects of Thatcherism. So if you take the housing crisis, it goes back to the sale of council houses. And, well, it's the non-replacement of council houses and the disgusting corruption of housing associations in this country, so-called social housing, which is another disgrace. The driving down of wages is obviously because the unions haven't been strong enough. The destruction of conditions, which is at the heart of this railway dispute now, they'll only give us a modest pay rise if we sell all of our conditions. So those people in the hairdressers, those people in a lot of private industry, but in increasingly in public services, are suffering from outsourcing, they're suffering from vulnerable work and low pay. Now, what we've got to do is convince them that we can lift them. We've got to get general unions that are in all these private sector operations. Uh, We've got to get uh, baristas and all that in a trade union. Uh, (laughs) And we used to have people such as this in trade unions going back in the day. We had a shop workers union that was very strong and very militant. In Ireland, they had a very strong tradition of bar bar workers being in trade unions and you did a proper apprenticeship. So we've got to try and get back to the fundamentals of what the trade union is about. But the main thing is we've got to destroy this. The real politics of envy happens between working people. Those of us that have kept our conditions and those of us that have been outsourced and been uh, driven into low pay. And what we've got to do as trade unions is make sure we don't just become a club of people in some professions, some places where we've got our levers on you know, bits of the economy and just become a sort of insourced uh, club of people that have got self-interest. We've got to broaden it out because it's lapping at our feet now. What they want to do in this railway dispute is break our conditions and outsource us to ISS and OCS and, all, and Serco and all these companies. It's coming to the prison service. Is coming to the health service. The health service right now is being consumed by overseas healthcare providers that are privatising us as we speak. And that's the prelude to just bringing generalised private uh, medicine uh, uh, and private outlets into our hospital service. So we've got to make sure that everybody's on board and we've got to win the battle of ideas in working-class communities. That's what we've got to do. And you can only do that If you're out there, it's no good being in your regional office as a trade union official, talking to your mates about what next year's conference will be like. You've got to be out there in these church halls, winning these arguments and bringing people into our movement.
1: Well, what if those people aren't the type of people to go into the church halls?
0: Well, we've got to get out there and have some conscription. We've got to get them in there. (laughs) Well, you've got to win it. If you show that your union can fight and win and fight and defend what you've got, People will be attracted to that. Uh, I was at the BMA rally last Saturday at this time. Young doctors, right? These people are all under 32 or whatever, that sort of age, starting off in their careers. So the previous generation of BMA activists have gone. You know, there's that dispute, was it 2015, 2016? Jeremy Hunt, interestingly. I wonder what he's doing now. They have to create a new set of activists every four or five years and they're there. And they're ready to fight, and they're not. They're from middle class generally, middle class backgrounds, or not trade union backgrounds. But I tell you what, they are feeling it. They know they're in a class struggle. Those barristers that were out on strike last year know that they're being pushed down. If they're taking your wages off you, taking your conditions off you, stripping you of your pension, you know that you're in a class struggle. We've got to be able to describe what that means to people in straightforward terms, which is why I keep saying to people, you're not going to get this struggle from a pamphlet or from a theoretical class. It's got to be about what we do amongst our own people, in the pub, at the football. Maybe don't go at the football in Cardiff, I don't know, but (laughs) wherever you go, we've got to be pushing these arguments in a comradely way, because we did do it. We were in a worse state in Victorian times... When the law was against us, the whole state was against us, we've got to make sure that doesn't come back. We've built this movement once or twice or maybe three times. You take into account the collapse after the general strike and the Great Depression and all that. We can do it again, but it needs us to think, it's no good posting on Instagram or Facebook or whatever you've got and leaving it there and that's going to achieve the change. The change will happen in person and physically, at the workplace, over a cup of tea join the union, build the network, move on to the next activity, small wins in each workplace, whether it's about the state of the mess room, or health and safety, or about the bigger issues about money and contracts of employment. That's the way you build unions, by keeping them growing organically all the time.
1: Since you've been
0: in your- Am I answering any of co- your questions? Well, just, yeah. just going on. <laughs> I, don't of, know. I don't
1: know. Since you've been in your current role, Has there anything that has surprised you in particular about the state of public services in the UK? Or maybe not?
0: I mean, I I know a lot, I mean, I use public services like everyone else. I'm surprised by the level of degradation that we're getting now. If you take the health service, everyone in it and everyone uses it, so we're all in it really. Um, And everyone will know a health worker generally in their community, because there's what, it's over a million health workers. It surprises me how quickly it's gone down uh, in the last couple of years. It was being propped up, and no matter what you think of Blair and Brown, they did put money in. I don't think they used it in the right way. but And most healthcare professionals will tell you it did actually cause the, the system to get better. But the long-term starvation of the health service, no matter how you measure it, is going to cause degradation. But it's true of everything. If you look at water providers, if you look at the, the state, of our physical environment these days, a lot of people think this country's going a bit shit, to be honest with you. And if you pop over to Copenhagen or The Hague or anywhere you want to go, you think, this place runs a bit better than where we come from, doesn't it? They've got public transport. They seem to have amenities and healthcare. They seem to be a bit healthier looking. And they're all bigger than us in a lot of these countries. You know, I think there's a lot to that. We've got long-term degraded and diluted services because of the profit motive. Because, one, they want to save money, but, two, they're opening it up for this argument about mass privatisation.
1: What I mean is, what makes us accept it, in your eyes, and what makes people in Denmark not accept that?
0: Conditioning. Because we've been conditioned that this is the way it's got to be. We're diseducated or maleducated in this country. I believe. We don't put enough emphasis on personal growth, personal development in the early years. And we are fairly unquestioning in a lot of working class communities that because it's been like this for the last 25 or 30 years in some of the former industrial towns, that's just what you've got to accept. And it's not the duty of the government or uh, public services to provide a better arrangement and a better society. We need more demands going on. We need to make more demands on the professional politicians and we need a redistribution of wealth. And that goes on all of the time. You know, Attlee said it, the greatest duty you can have as a rich man, as he put it, is to pay your tax. We've got to tax people properly and educate people properly. We need more public services publicly funded and less charity. And this we've also talked ourselves into this idea that everything should be provided by the third sector. When I was young, it was an add-on. Having the friends of uh, your local hospital was about making tea and cake. Now it's about delivering fundamental vital services in your hospital. That is a disgrace well,
1: in our society. Isn't that part of David Cameron's big society? Well, that is
0: the big society that you go around begging for things that should be human rights. And we don't state enough what the human rights are. It's the right to decent housing. The right to a good education the right to live healthily and the right to have a some expectation of happiness or or certainly human dignity and fairness in society
1: i had a little straw poll amongst some of the people i know um Mm. about today and what they Mm. might like to ask you okay and i had one interesting question um from a former public service worker retired now um trade unionist okay What's it going to take for the working classes to galvanise and stand up to this assault which has been piled on us for more than a generation? Sometimes I feel these strikes are too little, too late, and we're already done for. What do you say to that
0: person? I I, I love that kind of optimism. I think it's a bit too too hopeful. It takes hard work, I'm afraid. I mean, the the problem with theoretical people and people that want to... And you'll hear this every time I speak, and a lot of people in here might resent this... People that sell a lot of newspapers outside meetings and people that are waiting for the time, they don't do enough hard work, or the work they're doing is the wrong type of work. So selling people a pamphlet or organising a meeting of the ideologically pure is not going to cause a turnaround in equality. If you're committed to the labour movement, you're going to have to be committed it for your whole life, I'm afraid, those of you that are under 30 or 40. You have to keep working at it. I got into this when I was 16. The factory I started did my apprenticeship in. We had factories in London, by the way. Engineering, it was. Creating machinery. When I walked in, the foreman electrician, who was part of the management, said, fill in this form, join the union. You have to join the union or you won't be working here next week. So (laughs) it was a closed shop. Now, we may not get that back very quickly, but he'd been doing that for nearly 45 years at that age, and he handed it on to me, which is why I'm still in this, in this game now. You have to keep working at being a working-class activist and building up our community. Now, if you're not religious, that may be what your calling is, but what I'm sick of is the critics who keep saying, you didn't get everything you asked for or demanded in that strike. Well, no shit. You know, that's, that's how it goes. I'm looking to get something out of this. There's a couple of my members sitting there who just come in, who've been in the pub rather than having coffee, by the way. Uh, you know, we're going to get something out of this dispute, but what we've mainly got is our dignity and the ability to strike and the ability to inspire some other people, and maybe they'll get results. But you don't get it by being an activist at university for two years, dropping out and becoming somebody in marketing... And that's what a lot of this stuff is about. There's too many short-termists and not enough working-class people doing the work of the working-class in their communities. People want to leave the working-class and go somewhere else, which they call equality of opportunity, I think. Whereas what we want to do is change the working-class.
1: Speaking of which, what's the current state of play with your negotiations?
0: Ah, that's a good question. So... It's really tough. We're not; uh, They are not giving way in the sense that some people might want to. We did a lot of broadcasts way back in the spring of last year saying, this is a marathon, not a sprint. We will not get out of this with a clean result. You know, it'd be great if we did, walked in. And many people don't understand negotiations and haven't done it. You go in and say, can we have a load more money? And they go, I'm so glad you came in because that happens. We happen to have a load of money in our drawer. How much of it would you like? (laughs) A lot of people think that's what happens. They are putting so many conditions on us. They're almost asking us to do the impossible. It's almost as if they're creating a list of how we can provoke our trade union. So it's going to be really tough. We've got a new offer this week, which is as bad as it could be. It's it's 5% plus 4% over two years, which is 9%. During that period, the inflation rate would have been 22%, 23%. So you have got to be clever to work. That's less than half. But for that, we've got to give up everything that we've negotiated virtually. All of our conditions are on the table to be butchered. And many of our members say they'd rather not have a pay deal mm. than give up those conditions, which is a really uh, ironic and strange uh, statement from some people. But if you work 24-7, if you're out there up in the valley shoveling ballast in February, you'll want to know that you want some decent conditions about what your, uh, what your rights are and all the rest of it, and if you're working up in the north of Scotland or anywhere else doing the same stuff. So we've got a big challenge, and I'm not sure that our members are anywhere near to accepting this. What we've got to do, the challenge we've got, is to sustain the action. It's not that easy. One of the best things that the Tories ever did to us, from their point of view, was to get us into debt. So all of us are in debt one way or the other. I mean, I remember my old man going on a strike in 1971 in the CW. He'd just come out of the engineering trade. He was a before that he was in the building trade as a a good proper Irishman. He came out of where he was a shop steward. He thought, I joined the post office. They never go on strike. They haven't had a strike for a hundred years. As soon as he'd done his six weeks probation, as it was, we went on strike for nine weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Jam sandwiches is what we had. So it's but then what we had was no debt. We had a council flat, we paid our council rent, which was reasonable, and my mother and father never took debt on. Every now and again, they'd buy a sideboard or something on HP. Now, what they've done to us is put us all in debt, massively. And it's really difficult to throw that off as a worker because you're really petrified about being without four, five, six days pay. If you get into a situation where you're losing a month's pay and more, That's a real challenge. So we've got to find ways of supporting each other and doing maybe different tactically, doing different forms of industrial action and getting support from the likes of you people on the street, supporting strikers and showing that there's a a feeling behind it.
1: Are you getting enough support from the Labour Party?
0: (laughs) Well, the labor you've got to be clear, I'm not in the Labour Party. I've not been a member of the Labour Party since one of your own sons was leading it, Neil Kinnock. Uh, that's a long time ago now. We were talking about that on the way down. I can't remember which... Was it 83, that election? I I came out of it just after that uh, for a number of reasons. And we're not affiliated. But the fact is, I will be supporting uh, the election of a Labour government because I haven't got time to wait for my favourite lefty to lead the Labour Party and then win the Labour Party round and then win a general election. That ain't going to happen. We're even going to get Starmer or Sunak or whoever they've got that week, the Tories. It doesn't seem to matter. So we've got to get you. Those of you that don't like that have got to get your heads around it. Uh, it's in our class interests right now to get a Labour government and the RMT will work to that. And we've got... What we've done is we've got 50 uh, Labour MPs in our group in Westminster. We've got a group here in the Senate that's got a couple of Plaid Cymru people in it, mainly Labour people. We've got to work with the material we've got So that is the Labour movement. I've said it up in the Valley just now. We need a cultural part of our movement where we've got the musicians, the artists, the hipsters, all working behind the bar there. (laughs) Uh, All of those people have got to find a place in our movement. We've got to have a strong trade union element, and for me that's the strongest part, independent of the Labour Party, even if you're affiliated, so you're not kowtowing to them and asking them to do your favours. And then we've got to kick, prod, pull, poke, whatever we need to do, the professional politicians, whether they're in your parish council, your county council, in the Senate here, or up in Westminster, or in Scotland, if they want working-class votes, they've got to do things for working-class people. So it's not a question of just what can they do for us, it's how much we can kick them into doing what we demand.
1: You recently urged Keir Starmer to not be a vanilla Politician, yeah. what does a vanilla politician look
0: like? Well, it means you triangulate around problems rather than approach them. Now, I make a distinction between policy policies for the needs of the day. So you set your policy to what to what you need to do. What he's got to do, in my opinion, and stop being vanilla, is find his values and state the values. So my stuff is very old Labour. If you want, to, if you want to know, if you're interested, the welfare state, council housing, a fair deal at work let's not invade other people's countries uh, very often, that kind of values that I'm sure you can all pick up on. If he comes out and restates that in a modern way, I think he's going to get a massive response in working-class areas and saying things that are very plainly class politics. If Harold Wilson could do that, if Jim Callaghan could do that, and they used to call each other comrade, talk about our movement, they used to use that word socialism all of the time. Clement Attlee did it, right? Even uh, the most right-wing people in former Labour periods said they were socialists. I think the country is ready for that. I think our people are ready for that. If he says that, he'll get support. And then what we've got to do is have the argument about particular policies. And the argument that's going on now in the Labour Party, if you take transport, we've got They've, they've got... I've got to stop saying this, weird I'm not in it. They've got a brilliant policy on public ownership of the railway, which Andy McDonnell wrote under Corbyn. They've got a good policy on a new deal for workers, which is about workers' rights, rolling back the anti-trade union laws. The fight now, between now and the election, is to keep those policies as the policies that go into the manifesto. If they're not in there, you'll know that he's going to be as bad or as worse as Blair was. So the fight is now not to leave the Labour Party, sound like a hypocrite, not in it, not to have a mass exodus from the Labour Party because you're fed up with the way it's going, it's to fight for those ideas in the movement and make sure that's what, or a version of it, is delivered in a next Labour government. So I don't care if he comes to our picket lines, I don't suppose I'm going to see him. I know that there are hundreds of thousands of good Labour people down here in the Senate, in Westminster, I was just with one now, Beth is as good as you're going to get in the Labour Party. Jeremy was with us the other night. They won't let him in it. Uh, he's in it, but he's not in it or whatever. John McDonnell. But there's also some people in the middle of the party that will do some good work if they get the chance to be in government. They may not be my cup of tea. But we've got to make sure they're there. If they're not there, we're never going to find out what they could have done. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've got to do. So whether they support us or not, doesn't matter. we mm-hmm. keep the fire.
1: The, the union seems to be going off in different directions. You've got the Tories in England, you've got the SNP in mm. Scotland, you've got, obviously, Welsh Labour here. How do you view the future of the UK?
0: Well, I've never had a British passport, so I've got an Irish passport. some people in my union. I've, got, I've only ever had an Irish passport, and I come from a background that's very identified. I think people have got to be able to express themselves, and that comes through in the arguments about the nations, and I know down here, I find it profoundly interesting that people are fiercely patriotic in Wales, nearly all of them, but not all of them want more devolution or indeed want an independent Wales. And that's a debate you'll be having probably forever down here. Uh, And that's a really interesting dynamic. And there's a bit of that in Scotland as well, but it seems to have gone through a tipping point in Scotland Mm. when the old Labour voters then turned to the SNP because of what Scottish Labour had done. I think you've got a bigger chance down here with what Welsh Labour's doing. I know they're not everyone's perfect cup of tea, but compared to what they had in the Scottish Labour Party under Jim Murphy and all those uh, people, you've got a better chance. But the the nation has got a sort Well, the, the nations and the country have got to find a way through it. And if people don't get more devolution and more power, I think there will be calls. But there's already calls in England... The northeast is saying we want a regional mayor with big powers. Andy Burnham in in the northwest and in Liverpool they're starting to say it. So people are fed up with Westminster, and we've got to be careful that doesn't all become Trumpism, because that's their thing about DC and all that. And they're all we've got to find a way of getting the country into harmony. But my interest is is the working class united, have your identity about what your nation is, but we can't afford to be divided on religion or nation. Or our, or our own personal identities. We've got to find a way to work together. So I'm not calling for the breakup of the UK, but it's not up to me to determine whether the people of the UK want a different uh, platform and you know identity and nationality.
1: Uh, you've shared your views on Keir Starmer. What about Mark Drakeford?
0: Well, it seems like a nice guy to me. I don't. I mean, I'm living in London. I'm a bit London centric because that's the way it is. I don't see the Welsh news every night. Uh, I know he's got some problems with the NHS, but. I think he's a man that's trying to do a job in difficult circumstances with limited powers. Now, you lot would all tell me a lot of detail if we were having a drink together later about what you're unhappy with and what you're you know, disappointed with what they've done, but you do need some perspective about what it would be like in Wales if you didn't have devolution and if you didn't have a Welsh government. You know, Cast yourself back to the 80s when you had direct imposed... in this community and all they can do is ameliorate some of the worst excesses of Tory hardline, militant, right-wing politics and I think we've got that and we need to be using that phrase by the way. There's a bunch of militants running this country. Unfortunately they're the wrong type of militant from my point of view and they really are. They're ideological about the way they want this society to run. So Drakeford I think is a good line of defence from what they do. I just wish he could do more and again, he's, I think you know what Mark Drake's values are. It's probably resolves around decency and trying to do the best for working people. But whether he could do more or not, I'm not in the best place as a horrible Londoner to, to tell you, you know.
1: Um, I'm just going to ask you one last question before we throw a few questions open to the floor. But I was just wondering what would a successful conclusion to this current raft of industrial life, what, what would it look like to you?
0: For us in our union, it's the preservation of our conditions and a a decent pay rise. Whether we're going to get the full Monty of what we want, it's it's a conclusion that our members can support in a referendum, and that's the only way out of it. They will vote for on an offer at one stage, and it's one that they're content with that doesn't divide the union. Because in very serious disputes, one of the dangers is you get division. I told you so, and we could have done better. We made that mistake at that phase of the dispute. And there'll be all sorts of people in newspapers on the left waiting to pounce on, you know, mistakes we've made. But I don't know what it's like in your workplace, but the trade unions are made up of people who are mean to do the job properly. And if you don't make mistakes, you're never going to try anything. So it looks like a settlement on conditions, no compulsory redundancies and a decent pay offer. But we're not near that yet, I've got to say. We're a long way from getting that kind of deal.
1: OK. Can we have a show of hands who wants to ask Mick a question? Uh, thank you so much uh, for speaking and whatnot. Um, this is a bit of a weird question. So um, uh, is it honest for trade unions in Wales to organise anti-racist demonstrations with organisations that take money from the police when we disproportionately die in police custody?
0: I, well, I don't know which organisations you're talking about. You obviously know these organisations, but I'm a visitor to your town and, and to your country. so. I, I don't know about the particular answer, but I do think trade unions should be absolutely immersed in anti-racist, uh, and anti-Islamophobic, or anti anything else, and uh, on the favour of people that are on the side of people that are uh, oppressed and are disadvantaged. But I don't know the answer to that particular question about what the police are doing with particular pressure groups or whatever. I just I just don't know what you're hinting at, to be honest. Ah, yes. Hi, Mick. Um, thanks very much for giving your talk today. Um, as you might be aware, uh, Wales are undertaking a basic income pilot at the moment. Um, and I was wondering if you had an opinion on universal basic income. Yeah. And also, what impact do you think that might have on uh, trade unions if we were to implement it? Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. It could be dangerous. Uh, there's a number of things about it. It could end collective bargaining. There's also, and used to, In the 80s, we had a lot of arguments about minimum wage in this country. And I was in the electricians' union at the time, which was the most right-wing union in the country, and collaborationist and scab at that time. But those of you that are older will remember those times, Eric Hammond and Frank Chapel, And they always used to argue that if you bring in minimum wages, it will stop people like electricians and plumbers and, and doctors and all sorts of people collectively bargaining at their value and the value of labour will be reduced to a common thread. I think that argument has been disproven, if I'm honest with you, because the minimum wage does support a lot of people and and living the real living wage and all the rest of it. But you do get a tendency to that. So if you work for a cleaning contractor, they will only pay you that real living wage and they won't move off it. And if you have a basic wage, there is a question about whether you are achieving and being paid the full value of your labour. So, you know, labour produces all wealth in this society and uh, uh, the role of a trade union is to get a fairer share of that or a better share of the wealth that you're creating. Equally, I understand that if you've got a very disrupted economy where people are in and out of work, you need to smooth that off. So we've got to debate that out, and it could mean that we're we're moving to a society where employers are always subsidised, one by the taxpayer, but also maybe by another set of decent employers. So... There are some employers that give us deals. I mean, we've done a lot of deals. United are doing a lot of deals. where We're achieving 12%, 14% pay rises. You could end up with a basic wage of just having this band of people, which would be millions of people, on the same income. And I don't know whether that will serve us well, whether we're lifting everyone together or we're pinning everyone to a, a wage. But I do think it needs to be looked at, and it will certainly help a lot of communities... And it also it depends where it's pitched. So if you say it's a basic income, uh, you pick a number. Is it £380 a week or is it £120? I don't know. Does that take into account all of your benefits? Does it take into account this, that and the other? Does it apply to pensioners? Does it imply apply to people on disability allowances and so on and so forth? It's a really big policy and it's coming from... Some societies in Europe that frankly are more advanced than us because they, if you lose your job in Sweden, you don't get pushed down into mass poverty on whatever system they've got now. If you lose your job in this society, especially if you're a single person without kids, you could turn around and be on 70 pounds a week. Now, there's obviously a vast difference between that and uh, uh, some kind of minimum income guarantee that might be 250 or 300 pounds a week, and if it's short term between jobs, that would be better than the benefit system we've got now. But we really need to hear about it and understand it. But I'm not condemning it, but I'm not supporting it. How about that for a vanilla politician? <laughs> Lady here. Firstly, can I say thank you to the people of Wales, particularly our public service workers, mm. for standing up for us so publicly mm. because yeah. I think it's really well right. needed. I think what I would say is how what what is the one sentence you would give any activists to get people active? Well, get involved and build your network. Everyone says, how do you... Uh, than, I've got to stop after the sentence, because I do... Um... Get involved and build your network. Is People are asking us, how do we build the movement? It starts, I said it earlier, with those small things. If you're working in a non-union environment, you've got a really tough challenge. You've got And you've literally got to trust your friends first. Find out who your friends are and build that network up. If you're in an environment that used to be better organised, you've got more of a chance. You can build on the experiences and draw people together. But even if you're working in a non-union environment and not in work at all, if you're a student or or whatever, you've got to find a way to network up. And we've got to do that as a trade union movement, us that have been the traditional thing, you're in the party or you're in the union branch and all the rest of it. We've got to broaden out because some of these meetings, I said it earlier in Aberdeen. If you've been to as many union branch meetings as I have, you're going to have the tits bored off you multiple times. They are really tedious. They're necessary, but they are tedious. We've got to find a way of organising differently, and equally they've got to find a way of organising differently as well, because you can't just leave a memory on some kind of social media thing and think it's the, you know, I've done my activism for this afternoon, I'm going to go back to watching some dreadful Love Island or whatever. That's a caricature. (laughs) So we've got to find a way to learn from each other and build up the networks and get our heritage, the history of our movement, the history of our class and the history of our society as a debating point so people know all that stuff and what were the victories, what were the defeats, which were just as important, and find a way of building it up and being proud of being a worker and proud of being an activist and making sure it's not temporary. There's a few sentences there. Sorry about that.
1: Um, some of us, when we come to a certain age in our life, we think about a legacy. I'm looking at what I can do in terms of my work. But given your role and the impact that you have made, and at some point this is going to come to a conclusion, and hopefully in the interest of workers, would you be interested in setting up a mobile academy where you can go and educate you know, future leaders? Because, quite honestly, some of what we have because they're so boring, they have mm. no substance. And mm. I have to say, you know, take my hat off to you, there's not that many men I can say I can, yeah, you know, he's worth listening to. You certainly are. <laughs> 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 None
0: of them. There are any men listening to? Yeah, I think this, it, some of it is going back to basics, having debates. I mean, when I was a kid, when there was a general election on, used to have enormous rallies. The Tories used to do it, and you'd go along there and have a go at them, to be fair, to those old-school politicians. And they were bruisers. I mean, these people weren't, you know, vanilla politicians, these old-school Tories. And the Liberals did it, and Labour did it. And Harold Wilson was famous for being able to deal with hecklers without security and before, you know, modern stand-up comedy. We've got to get back to this idea that we actually talk about issues rather than post them up with a snide comment, that you actually respect what's going on inside the movement, but you're also able to defeat what is becoming consensus, that this is the only way you can run the world, you can't run it on a more equal basis, and you can't run it on the basis of redistribution, and you've got to put very simple arguments forward. If the working class is to get better off, to some extent the ruling class has got to be worse off. That's what Attlee believed in by taxing them in the right way and shutting down their stately homes and all the rest of it. Deaf duties was bemoaned by the upper class It's because we got their money and we built the NHS and we built schools and all the rest of it. So the academy ideas, it came up today in Aberdeer as well, that we need to get the unions and our movement and our thinkers and our leaders or former leaders perhaps more aptly, into schools and waking people up. I don't quite understand how we do it, because most teachers have got organised union members in them. But let's not forget that Gove, going back to Baker, Kenneth Baker and Gove now in the last few years, they are making the, the, uh, what do you call it, curriculum, so rigorous about churning out industrial and commercial drones... For their finance factories, that thought and arts and history and literature are being driven to the bottom. And if you look at our, what our our people made for our community, these people had to do that all the day down the pit or in the mill or in the factory or even on the farm. I was at Burston last year, where we where we had agricultural unions. They were sick of talking about work, so they talked about art. They talked about religion. They talked about music and ideas and that's what we need. We need to get back to the ideas that working class people educate each other all of the time and we've got to rebuild our heritage and where we come from. So people need to find out about imperialism, what that actually meant for the people that were the victims of it over there in in the countries that we invaded and those of us over here that were victims of it as well because it you know, they put us in those satanic mills and took us off the land and industrialised so they could send all that crap that we made over to the places where they were exploiting other people in other countries. So it's all part of our heritage, and the legacy has got to be that we, we keep the movement going and we pass it on to the next group of people that are coming through. That's our legacy. So your answer is yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> so. I mean, in the Russian Revolution, they had all those film sets going around, didn't they, into the uh, into the, agricult- the vast agricultural wilderness out there, and showing moving images and all the rest of it. Maybe we need a bit of that. Have you ever seen moving images in this part of Cardiff? I don't know. <laughs>
1: and on that note, I think we're out of time. So oh, can we okay. give Mick a big round of applause? Oh, thank please?
0: you. Good. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe in your podcast player of choice. And if you're interested in attending one of our future events, please keep an eye on our social channels where we are at Pod. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe,
1: rate and review.